a reading this morning, a reading from Galatians chapter 3. If you have a copy of the Pew Bible there in front of you, I believe it's page 912 or 913, Galatians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 29, Galatians 3, 15 through 29. So would you receive this reading as it is, the very reading of the words of God. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. And let us pray. Oh, Father, dear Father, I feel total weakness this morning to be the servant that you called me to be. But your word says that when we are weak, we are strong because your grace is sufficient. And Father, whether or not my friends in this room feel it or not, they are weak to actually hear your voice this morning. Jesus, you said in John 15, verse 5, apart from you, we can do nothing. Nothing. We cannot preach. We cannot hear. We cannot apply the word to our hearts. Ah, you must come. And do what only you can in this room. And Father, you do week in and week out. And so we trust you with your word to do the good work for us. We have planned, we have prayed, we have studied. But it's you who make things grow and give things life. So let this book live unto us now that we might feast upon the contents that you've provided for us therein. We might be strengthened 
we might be further commissioned and empowered to love Jesus and one another. And we ask this in your name. Amen. In last week's message, we looked at the blessed fact that God had saved and was growing, spiritually speaking, growing the Galatian churches via the means of them hearing the word of the gospel and believing it. And he was not saving them and growing them by the means of their own self-righteous law-keeping. And in the midst of Paul reminding them of their experience of the gospel and its blessings through faith, Paul launched in that text into an illustration for them of how this is the way God saves and blesses anyone he's ever going to save or bless. And the illustration was focused upon the man Abraham. You see he's also in our text this morning. Abraham was an example to the Galatians and is an example to all people of how God saves. And it's not through righteous doings of our own, but it's rather it's through the gospel, the work of Christ and his perfect and infallible work that we are called when we hear the gospel to believe. And once faith is exercised in the gospel and we rest upon Christ alone for salvation, we are justified in the sight of God. Abraham was a fit example of this in our Bibles. And Paul, ending the section on chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 last week, ended on a gospel note that was very personal. Very personal for the Galatians, personal about who Abraham, for Abraham. And the natural question at that juncture might be, as you finish the first 14 verses of Galatians, is why does Paul go back into the past of redemptive history, the history of the Bible, and pull only Abraham as his first illustration, or his main illustration, if you will, for righteousness and how someone believes and is justified? Why Abraham? Well, we have to remember that Paul is dealing with a very crucial theological controversy amongst the Galatians. For two chapters, we've seen him have to defend the nature of the gospel against Jewish legalism that had crept into the ranks of the Galatian churches. And now he is going to have to continue to show how deeply erred the Judaizers were. We call the, these uh, Pharisees who were teaching in the churches of Christ, the very early churches of Christ, that they must be Jewish in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. Uh, we call them Judaizers because that's exactly what they were calling people in the Galatian churches to do. That you had to believe in Jesus, yes, but you had to add Jewishness, if you were a Gentile, to your faith, which required circumcision, keeping of certain... Uh, Israeli Sabbath laws and uh, feast days and kosher diets and wearing certain garments. And, and, and so these Galatians were being uh, bothered and the gospel was being distorted by these Pharisees, by these legalists. And Paul has already given a lot of objective evidences from God's dealings among men that show that the Pharisees have botched the law and the gospel. 
that they understand neither the purpose of God's law and, of course, neither the purpose of the gospel. And Paul's going to go down to the roots of their problem in this particular passage that is set before us this morning. And what he's going to do is he's going to show how they get the entire history of, of redemptive history itself wrong. And so Paul's going to deal with them very clearly. He's going to deal with them very robustly. And we're going to have to stay in line with the text as we walk through it because his arguments are some of the headiest of his arguments in the entire letter against Jewish legalism, which really we're going to see as a framework and an argument against all forms of legalism and false teaching. You know, it was Theodore Beza, uh, John Calvin's successor in Geneva, who said that the, the gospel, the, the word of God is made up of two parts, chiefly the law and the gospel. And anyone who discerns the purposes of the law and the gospel correctly is going to be able to cure all manner of ills that will ever theologically plague the church. It's quite a statement, it's an immense statement. But the more I learn about the nature of the law and the gospel, the more I realize Theodore is right. And so we need what's in this text. We've been plagued with heresies in the church for two millennia now. And we see that it keeps getting worse in the culture. However, if we discern rightly the purpose of God's law, the purpose of the gospel will stay on track. We can't say everything about the law and the gospel today, but we can say what this text today says about the law and the gospel. And I framed uh, our time together in the Word of God this morning this way. Three points, of course. And um, in verses 15 through 18 of our text, we're going to see the permanence of the promise, the permanence of God's promise. In verses 19 through 25, we're going to see the purpose of the pedagogue. Pedagogue means a teacher, right? The purpose of the pedagogue. And finally, in verses 26 through 29, we're going to see the product of the promise. So the permanence of the promise, the purpose of the pedagogue, and the product of the promise. First, though, Paul begins his argument for the permanence of God's promise by using an argument that is called an argument from the lesser to the greater. Let's read verse 15 again together. Let's look at his uh, argument. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, remember, Paul has just been talking about, you know, Abraham's faith and how that's an example of justification. Well, God, remember, he came to Abraham in Genesis 15 and he made a covenant with Abraham. And so Paul is continuing the illustration and example of Abraham as an example of how someone is justified. And, and so he brings up covenants here, naturally thinking about Abraham and his story as is recorded in Genesis. And so Paul, pivoting from the divine covenants, looks at a human covenant as an example and then goes back to the divine covenant. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, Paul here asks the Galatians to think about some early Greco-Roman legal covenants. It's probably last will and testaments of the Greco-Roman world that Paul is thinking of here when he asks them to think of man-made covenants that cannot be annulled nor amended. And under Greek law, in the time that the apostle himself wrote, 
A will could not be altered once it was fully completed. That's probably stricter now than our laws. I'm not up to date completely on the current will and testament laws, although I should be, and I should have my will uh, written out pretty soon because it's just good and wise for Christian people to do that. This is a little FYI. If you don't have a will like me, let's get one. And uh, that way, so when it comes to your time to go to heaven, that we don't have to figure out your desires and you can save your family a lot of grief and all things like that. But Paul is bringing up these wills and these matters right here, not because he's motley, but because he's making an example. And his example is, look, there are human legal binding covenants that can't be altered. And so when you think of that and then go back to God, you think God's going to alter the promises that he made in a covenant with Abraham? Uh, and, and, and the answer should be obviously a big no, that, that, that God would never go back on his word. Verse uh, 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings. And let me just stop the reading right there. So here we see, if, if, if promises were made and then codified into a covenant with Abraham, do you think God is going to be the one to alter his covenant in some way. This is what Paul wants the Galatians to think. Well, if men don't alter their legal binding contracts, I mean, God, who never changes, is he going to take his legal covenants and change them? And so the first thing we see is we see an argument for the permanence of God's promise from an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look, there are things that are so serious that they can't be altered once people contract to do them. Well, so it is with God when he has condescended in the history of redemption to make covenants. He is not going to annul certain promises that were issued. And particularly, we're talking about the promises as they are focused upon Abraham. You know, you go to certain of the biblical covenants and you see that parts of the covenants God built in an obsolescence to them. He built in parts of the covenants that were going to uh, be annulled and abrogated. And that does not contradict what I said, because the promises never were annulled and never were abrogated, just certain laws and covenantal provisions. And so the promise that was given to Abraham and what is the promise? Well, Paul's going to get very specific. Which promise within the context of the Abrahamic covenant was, is never going to be annulled, never going to be amended? Well, he goes right here in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. And so we see that the person who was ultimately promised things in the Abrahamic covenant was Christ himself. And this is the highest argument for the permanence of God's promise, that it will not be altered, changed, diminished, nor die. The promise of God will not change, alter, diminish, or die, because ultimately the promises that were made to Abraham were made to him and his offspring. And here, Paul is very clear that the specific offspring the promises were made to were not Isaac, but Christ. And see, many people here, many theologians, fall into a ditch from which they cannot recover themselves. It's a very deep verse, verse 16. Because when you begin to really think about it, wait, wait, 
Abraham was promised an actual, tangible, immediate in his time son that he would have. And it was Isaac. And I thought the promises were made to Abraham and to Isaac that from them there would be many nations that come. You read that in Genesis 50 through 17 and again later in Genesis 22. That nations were supposed to come from these men's loins by the workings of God. Well, that's indeed true. But let me just let James Haldane say it the best way he can, our early particular Baptist father of England. He said that there are two sons of Abraham. There's the son according to the flesh, Isaac and his lineage. And then there are the spiritual sons of Abraham. They're the ones who are headed by Christ. Christ is the spiritual fulfillment of this promise in the words of our particular Baptist father, James Haldane. And... Isaac is the carnal fulfillment of this promise. So we see, as we've said from this pulpit time and time again, that in the biblical covenants, in covenant theology, all is moving in the Old Testament towards the new. And all are pictures and types given in the old of that which would happen in the new. And so we see here more typological reference by Paul that Isaac was a provided miracle son given by sheer grace and promise. And who is Jesus? (laughs) The miracle son given by sheer grace and sheer promise. He was a type. So Isaac and all of the economy of the work of God inside of the Abrahamic covenant in times was prefiguring and picturing and foreshadowing Christ. And Paul says here then, ultimately... The promises that were made were to Christ and were fulfilled in Christ. And if God has promised his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be blessed with many peoples, many nations would come from him, many people would come to him, well, then you know God's going to keep his word to Christ. You know, it's almost a blasphemous thought to think, you know, if God told me something and then chose not to do it, Someone might make an argument, well, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. Now, I do not believe God alters his word. When God speaks, it's faithful. But in a hypothetical sense, God owes, and in a real sense, in this way, God owes me nothing. However, can you ever imagine, even in the farthest reaches of your fallen mind, God ever lying to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? ever altering a promise he made to the darling of heaven, Christ. No. And so we see that Paul is building an argument for the permanence and unalterable nature of the promise inherent to the gospel. Paul really at this point in verse 16 is underscoring what we call in theology the pactum salutis in the theological Latin. That means the the pact of salvation. That God, the Trinity himself, amongst themselves, worked out prior to the foundations of the world. We looked at that when we looked at Luke twenty-two twenty-nine 29 in this church. And how Christ said, the Father has diathiakie, has, has covenanted to me a kingdom. And Christ came to work out that plan and get that kingdom for himself. And that's what we see here, that the nature of the promises of God are unalterable. Just as men wouldn't alter certain legal binding contracts because of the absolute seriousness and importance of them, so God doesn't 
alter the promise that was carried along in the covenants that was planned before time began and is focused and riveted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does he have to do this? Well, remember the Judaizers. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see, the Pharisees, or the Judaizers, as we're calling them, were teaching in the Galatian churches that when Moses came along, that which was covenanted with Abraham was made null and void. And Paul knows that the Pharisees are teaching this. He knows that they think that the law somehow altered the promise of free justification by grace. And thus, these men are just living out, these Pharisees are, what they believe. They believe that God added the works of the law to justification. Therefore, they're teaching Gentile Christians, now that you've believed the promise, obey the law as a means for acceptance with God. And they think that for some reason, or at least they imply in their bad theology, that the promise is made void. But what does Paul say here? The law didn't come but 430 years after the promise was issued to Abraham. And when the law came, it did not nullify a covenant previously ratified by God. The Mosaic covenant did not do away with the promises of the Abrahamic covenants. And so the law then must have a different purpose. If it was not added as a means of salvation, if it was not added or altering the promise in any way, the natural next question is, verse 19, why then the law? Why the Mosaic Code? Well, Paul's very clear and unequivocal in his answer, and he says several fantastic things that we really need for our soul's sake here. We move from the permanence of the promise, which we see is a, Argument from the lesser to the greater, that some contracts are so binding that they can't be altered. And then we see that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were ultimately made to Christ. Therefore, it is very permanent, this covenant, because members of the Trinity do not lie to each other. Well, now we move from that into now the purpose of the pedagogue, the purpose of the teacher of the law, the natural question that's asked by our text. Verse 19, why then the law? I mean, if it didn't change the promises of God, if it didn't alter the Abrahamic covenant, why the law? He says it was added because of what? Transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the first thing Paul says, and he says several things here about the purpose of the law, the purpose of the pedagogue. The first thing he says is the law was added because of transgression. Now, the people of Israel to whom these covenants that I'm speaking of this morning were made, were a people who were sinful. They were like all people, born as members of Adam's race. And when you see God's initial dealings with them, you see it in Genesis 15 with Abraham, the father of the Jews, the first Jew. Prior to Genesis 15, there are no Jews in our our Old Testament Bibles. But when God comes in covenants and creates a nation for himself with Abraham, we see the Jewish nation born. And in his dealings with Abraham, what do we get? We get a covenant. And then as as God continues to relate to them, eventually 430 years later, we get Mosaic law. And Paul has to deal with, hey, 
Why was that law given? Well, the law was given because of transgressions, because the people he had made were a sinful people. Even Abraham himself, we see, deal with sin in his life, the father of the Jews. And then all of the Jewish patriarchs, whether it be looking at Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or whoever you're looking at in your Old Testament, you see them struggling with sin. And so God, if a promise was going to be fulfilled to them, a promise of future justification based on the offspring who is Christ in verse 16, if that Christ was going to come about and Christ was going to achieve a salvation, God added a law to these people because their sin was a great problem to the fulfillment of the purpose. Tell you, this is where Paul's going. The people were sinful. And the people were so sinful in such a way that if law wasn't added to them, they might have derailed themselves completely as the people of God. And what does it mean? Well, whenever we look into the old covenant laws, we see that they're conditional by nature, many of them, as far as what God asks of and demands of, the, of Israel. They could be disinherited. They could be cast out of God's presence. Over and over again, God says, if you will do this, then I will do this to them. And the laws helped poke them and prod them and direct them into a direction that kept them at least together as a people. Many perished under the law. Uh, when you look at the Mosaic Code and you look at those laws, what do you see? You see a lot of dietary laws, a lot of cleanliness, sanitation laws. You see a lot of uh, judicial and civic laws with its penalties and its principles. And all of this was put in place. Paul's saying right here before us, so that, and I'll use this illustration, so that a womb for the Messiah might be created, out of which he would come. And God had marked out a people in sheer grace, saved the father of them, made a covenant with them, gave them laws to secure that they would not completely destroy themselves in their sin. Many destroyed themselves, but so that the society and nation of Israel as a whole would not destroy themselves. God was marking out and he was fencing in a nation and a people and a society through whom he could send Christ to fulfill the promise that was originally made. That's what we've seen so far here, that the law was added because of transgression to box in Israel to be the people of God who would birth the Messiah. And Paul goes on here to say it was put in place through angels by an intermediator. There's like three verses in the New Covenant, excuse me, the New Testament that show that angels were present at the giving of the Sinaitic law, the law at Sinai that was given to Moses. An intermediator applies more than one. These, these covenants of the Old Testament, they were a two-way street, but God is one. God alone singularly gave the promise to Abraham without an intermediary. Remember when I said in passing last week that God took Abraham out on a starry night for a moonlit walk and he said, Abraham, Genesis 15, right? Abraham, count the stars. Can you calculate the stars? For as many of them there are, there will be sons who come from you. And Abraham got his calculator out, right? No. It said Abraham believed God's promise and it was accredited to him for righteousness. And Paul says, here, that was, a single work, that was a singular work of God. God surely by himself showed up in Abraham's life. No, no smoke, no fire like on Mount Sinai. No angels. No, just God. Surely grace, promise coming to Abraham. God is one. No intermediary. God himself. Saving Abraham. 
And so he's showing that the purpose of the law, and, and, and that's, that's what's important here, the purpose of the law must be different from the purpose of the promise. Because God gave the law and the promise in very different ways, using mediators in one, going directly and immediately himself to give the promise. The law boxed the people of Israel in, kept them as a nation, stopped them from falling apart absolutely completely. And law does that. When you just think of law, like Paul did at the top of our text, I want to go to think of just human laws. What do they do? Well, they're supposed to restrain evil. We know they can be broken, but it is really a great um, motivation not to break law if you're looking at jail time, right? Uh, I know some people who are only honest because there's laws. You know, they're not honest because they love honesty. They just don't want to go to jail or they don't want to, you know, and things like that. They don't want to lie on their taxes because there's, there's, there's jail time on the other end. Amen. And um, those, those other things. So... We can see how the law is used to restrain corruption and to box in people from completely destroying themselves. And some people would say, okay, wait a minute, verse 21. Okay, I see the first purpose of the law. The first purpose of the law, when it was historically given, was to keep Israel as a marked out nation, fenced in with certain things that would strain the corruption so they didn't go into total anarchy and Christ couldn't be born from them. I see that's the first purpose here in this text. But as people thought about that, listening to Paul preach that, they then asked another question that Paul raises in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Ah, you see this now. The law was also given not just to box the people of Israel in and create a womb for the Messiah that would be secure, that would come so that he could come in the fullness of the times that God had ordained for him to come. But the scriptures also were given to show us the extent and significance of our sinning. The law, it it says right here, if they ask the question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. Why would they even ask the question? Because the Pharisees can't help but think law equals salvation. And if it doesn't save me, well then, what? What do we do with the law? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? And he's he's telling them, no, stop thinking that the law equals salvation. They're not contrary. They're complementary. And he's going to show how. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would have been by the law. Friends, don't ever begin to think that when God gave the law in history, he gave it for the purpose of saving the people of Israel. The law never saved anyone. And that's why Abraham has been lifted up by Paul to be the example of how you're justified by grace apart from any works. And he's gone on here to show that in detail, that the law was given to box in the people of Israel historically, and for all men everywhere, it was given that we might look at the righteous standard of that law and say, I don't meet it. And I don't meet it to a great extent. And then even when our Lord came into the world and gave his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he taught on the law in verses 16 down through past verse 19 and on into the 27 of that chapter, he talked about the law in such a way that he magnified it. 
He talked about how we break it and he went down deep into our motives, deep into our minds, and he took God's law and he shone the, the legal light of the law on the depths of our hearts in that sermon and he showed just how deeply wicked and sinful we are. And friends, that's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to look at it and say, hey, I can do that, because you can't. The purpose of the law is to be a mirror to show you exactly how disfigured you are, morally speaking. That's the purpose of the law for all of us. And so when we look at the law, we see what? We see a need for Christ. That's what Israel should have seen. Israel had, to, had sacrifices that they had to give for their daily sins over and over and over and over again perpetually. All the bloodletting of lambs, all the bloodletting of goats, all the bloodletting of all these different sacrifices, they were given to all kinds of things. The perpetual pilgrimage to the tabernacle, the perpetual pil pilgrimages for feast days, year after year, and they were constantly going through this ritualistic, ceremonial-like cycle of worship that was like a treadmill of unending performance. And none of those sacrifices, none of those feasts did away with their sin. They still remained a sinful people. It didn't give them life. It doesn't give us life. When we look into the law of God, particularly the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, what do we see? We break them time and time again. The law cannot give us life. Therefore, stop thinking like the Pharisees that you can find life in law. The scriptures have instead used the law to imprison everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is how the law complements the gospel. The law directs you to your need to surrender your self-righteous lifestyle over to the righteousness of Christ. That he who came and obeyed the law perfectly, the only lawful man who's ever lived, you need him. And the law is to bring you to that point. Lord, I have not been able to satisfy my sins through law keeping. I need you to do something. I need you to intervene. <coughs> Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Not do. Remember, last week we said the law, being righteous by the law, being made right with God through law, runs on a principle of do this and live. Do this and you gain life. The promise is the opposite. Here's life. Now live. The promise gives you a right standing with God. <clears throat> the promise that Christ took away your sins in his death and has risen to glorify you. If you believe that, your record's clean before God. Righteousness covers you, and you now can meet the standards of the law through the dynamic of the grace of Christ in your life. But Paul doesn't want us to get it the other way around. He wants us to live and then do good. He doesn't want us to do good in order that we might live. Verse 23, now faith came. Excuse me, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see this? Everyone's in a dungeon and we don't have a key. And the dungeon itself is the law. But the dungeon is not meant to ultimately kill us and keep us isolated in the dungeon. The promise is the key. The gospel is the key. And it is the only key that unlocks the door to that prison 
People who are in prison and plagued day in and day out with guilt. Think of Martin Luther in his monastic cell as an Augustinian monk, not being able to expiate the sense of guilt in his mind. He would go to confession so much that when, that when he would show up in the confessional booth, his, I guess what we would call the equivalent today of his parish priest, told him, Martin, come back when you actually have something real to confess. Because he would confess fastidiously every little single sin that he could think of. He would write pages, bring it into the confessional and pour out his soul, trying to get rid of his sense of guilt and disconnectedness to God and the darkness of his heart that he was made aware of. And he said, the law of God was screaming at me day in and day out. Guilty, guilty, guilty before God. And nothing he could do and all of his ritualistic righteousness could save him. And then he read Romans chapter 3 verse 22. Where it says the righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ. Just belief and trust in Christ. Christ infallible and perfect in his life. Perfect in his sacrificial death for our sins. And he said when I believed that it was as if I walked through the gates of paradise. And he was released from the guilt of his sins. And Paul says this. That that guilt, that time of imprisonment prior to Martin Luther's release. Is what the law was meant to do to all people. The reason there are so little tears of repentance in our churches today and such little contrition and lowliness is because there's such lack of law preaching. Now, I'm not talking obviously about law for salvation. I'm talking about taking the law, showing it to people so that they can see their morally ugly faces. That is not popular preaching. But we see right here in this text that that's the clear purpose of the law, to show us our unrighteousness. You see, if you're drowning over the side of a bridge, and someone throws a rope, you're going to grab the rope, right? But let's just say you're in water and you don't know you're drowning. I don't know how that would ever happen. You won't look for the rope. If you don't think you have a need, you're not going to go seek that which you do need. If you don't know of your need, you know, if I didn't know I had cancer, and I've never had cancer, praise the Lord, but if I, didn't know I had, if, if I didn't know I had cancer, if I didn't have any symptoms, I wouldn't think anything was wrong with me, typically speaking. And so the law says something's woefully wrong with us. And we need the promise of the gospel to cure it. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be declared righteous, justified by what? Faith, trust in the finished work of our Lord. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian. For in Christ Jesus, and then he goes on to his next section, which will be brief, the last section here, verses 26 through 29. But we see that what's the purpose of the pedagogue? To mark out a womb for the Messiah to come in history. To show us the extent and significance of our sins. And now what do we see? Well, the faith comes. And the guardian goes. The word here for guardian is the Greek word pedagogos, which literally means a pedagogue, a teacher. And it really has more in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul lived and wrote. It had more connotation of a disciplinarian, kind of a severe nanny type character, right? Someone who would watch specifically over the behavior of boys in rich Greco-Roman homes. That's how the law acts. It deals with behavior and it shows us sin and it hits us on the hand when we go astray. It's the consequence of our sin that God has built into the natural law and order of things. However, that guardian no longer has to teach us how to behave anymore. 
We've got the gospel. We've been set free. We have the power of God's spirit, as last week's text said, living inside of us, and it leads us into all righteousness. We have a supernatural principle of new life birthed into us through regeneration by faith in the gospel. And now we just use the law as a standard to see what's right and wrong, as a standard for life, and no longer as the dynamic by which we are trying to be made righteous. We don't need the guardian. We don't need the law for righteousness sake. As far as becoming righteous goes, we have the spirit of God. And so now that the guardian is gone and the faith has been revealed, the power of the gospel has been poured out, change has been wrought into our hearts, what does it say? For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through your faith. We're all sons of God through faith. And Paul is getting now to his very practical, the product of the promise. What happens when you, when you reject law keeping and believe the promise of the gospel? Well, you no longer have to worry about this Jew-Gentile thing that the Pharisees in Galatia were worried about. You're all one through your faith in Christ. And so it is with all people who believe upon Christ. Today there are so many divisions within the church, but everyone who truly confesses the name of Christ belong to one another as a family belongs. Notice the term here. You're sons of God through faith. You were baptized into Christ. You've put on Christ. And the reference here to baptism is clear in verse 27. And it says those of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And what is this? Well, you see, in the days of, of Paul, again, as he was writing, uh, they would put on clothes to identify themselves with the, with the society around them, particularly their own inner social club, particularly the wealthier people of that day. You know, the poor wore rags and it identified them as poor in their rags. That isn't always the case in our, in our culture today. But even as I was watching last night a, a rendition of the 1920s in, um, in, in London, uh, there was a group of Irishmen called the Peaky Blinders, right? And they would wear certain clothing so that people would know they were one of the group. Baptism acts much in that way. It says to the world who sees us go into the waters of baptism under the Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we are now identified with all that belongs to the values and doctrines of Christ. And so he's saying, you've all put on the same clothes. You're all wearing the same hood. You've got the same hat on. You've got the same shoes on. You've got, the, you've got Christ now as the only thing for you. And he brings up clothes because he wants to show them that all exterior barriers have been taken away. And the only thing that matters is Christ. As far as our spiritual fellowship goes. We're all sons and daughters of God. We've been baptized. We've been marked. We've put on Christ together. So in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's not even a slave man or a free man. There's not a male. There's not a female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, he says. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so what do we see here? The distinction that the Pharisees kept trying to make between there's Gentile Christians and you know, they're like Havsi Christians just because they've only you know, believed on Jesus but they've not been circumcised, they're not keeping the law. And then there's us real Christians, you know, we keep the law, these Jewish Christians. And Paul says, Christ, Christ did away with all that. He's the only covenant there is for salvation out there. Therefore, if you're in him, everything is about him. Notice what it says. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say to the church of Colossae? He says, Christ is all in all to the churches. And so we don't look at each other. And relate to each other on the basis of socioeconomic status. 
We don't even relate to each other ultimately as Christians in our spiritual walks on the basis of male and female. Nobody has a, because of their status or some external circumstance in life, has, is like putting first-class Christianity and someone else is putting second-class Christianity, right? Christ. We are all sons, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we might be a motley crew made up of a diversity of interesting critters, but we are Christ's. And therefore, we believe Christ and we follow him. And the distinctions we make among ourselves and the flesh, Paul said we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. For we don't even regard Christ according to the flesh. We regard him according to the spirit. Now, of course, don't hear what I'm not saying. When you become a Christian, gender is obliterated. When you come to Christian vocation, vocational differences are obliterated. I'm not saying that these things that are real realities in the flesh and in the world are suddenly obliterated when you become a Christian. There are people who have tried to use this verse to say that we should ordain, uh, we should ordain uh, female uh, ministers in our churches, that we should uh, stand with the transgender community. They're saying all these things based on this verse, saying, look, there's not even male or female in Christ, that verse says. That's because Paul has been talking in covenantal spiritual language the entire passage. And to come to that conclusion when you get down here is to read the verse as if it were you had blinders on. And you just come to that one little verse. And you say, there you go. Gender is obliterated. The same God who created gender is the same God who gave Christ. And those two must complement one another for God does not contradict himself nor lie. And so we have to look at these verses. And we have to really see that this is all in Christ language. And so even if we're sick or we're sound in body, if we're sad or we're happy in our lives, if we're poor or rich, old or young, man or woman, we are bonded together in Christ. And that supersedes things of the flesh in our lives. There are distinctive roles that all of us have to play. Paul's going to go on in Corinthians to talk much about that. But as far as our primary relationship is concerned to one another, we are one in the bonds of Christ. Therefore, we don't have to worry about these external works for righteousness because we're not distinguished by externalism. We're distinguished by the grace of God in Christ that was given once for all so that we might live, as I said last week, solely deo, Gloria to the glory of God. Our Father, what an immense text. What an immense assignment to preach this text. Lord, I pray that whatever was unhelpful would fall on deaf ears. And whatever was meant to bless, that you would bless your sheep with those words. I thank you and I praise you for the eternal provision of your word, that it is a sure and steady anchor, that the promise cannot be made null and void by anything, that when all changes around me, it remains steadfast. And my faith must constantly connect with this promise. Energize our faith. Help us, O oh Lord, with our unbelief, that we might believe grace is as great as your word says it is. Ah, for if we drink from that fountain, we will be energized to live righteous lives and we'll love your law. We won't use it erroneously. It's not a means. It can't bring life. It's a mirror to show us our sin and to send us to our Savior. I thank you that you preserved the people of Israel through all of their wanderings, 
through their life in Canaan so that Christ might come to us. For the promise of faith that was brought to him. Lord, I thank you for each individual sheep in this room that through the law you showed them their sin and you drew them to yourself. You, you, you threw them upon Christ. And if there be anyone left within the sound of my voice who has not come by the way of faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that this would be a day of grace for them. From darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. We bless you now, holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.